the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now this is the May 2023 Literature Review Series. And the episode leads off with featured articles, a six-pack of studies highlighting some of the best articles of the month. Uh, Then the discussion shifts to articles focusing on cardiology, infectious diseases, and emergency medicine. Before closing out the category featuring articles voted on by you, friends of the pod, in the pharmacist featured section, aka the front of the fridge, if you want to vote, be sure to follow on Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose. Uh, Speaking of voting and social media, the votes are in. The first annual Pharmacy to Dose Awards were a success because of you, friends of the pod. Everyone who nominated and voted, thank you so much. Now, stay tuned. You will certainly find out the winners in due time. But for now, May 2023 was a great month for research and publications to highlight on this episode. Very, very excited. So three, two, one. One, let's go. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we are here, and it is the May Literature Review Series, and my special guest is none other than Kelly OJ. Now, she is currently the Community Regional Medical Center Emergency Medicine Clinical Pharmacist in Fresno, California. And she came all the way after finishing her PGY2 from Yale New Haven in Connecticut. So for those who forget geography, we went from one coast to the other coast. So uh, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Nick. Incredibly excited and fortunate for this opportunity. I will say when I met you at EM Power RX, I did not put a face and voice to the name Pharmacy to Dose. So to realize that after the fact was embarrassing, but also incredibly, it was just a privilege. So thank you for having me. That's a common thing that um, 
people won't recognize me until like I'll say something on the microphone or something. And then people will be like, oh, wait. Right. So um, now I have to ask, you're coming from Yale, New Haven. So this is it's like if I talk to someone from Philly, I'm going to get their cheesesteak recommendation. If I talk to someone who spent time in Yale, New Haven, we got to get a pizza rec. So, Kelly, let us know you have one day, one slice of pizza you can have in Yale, New Haven. Where are you going? The answer doesn't come without consequences, depending on who you talk to. I couldn't leave New Haven without a slice of Sally's Pizza. Although, lesser on the radar is a place called The Nellie's. It has been top rated in Connecticut. So if anyone wants to try anything different, we have the Sally's, we have Pepe's, Modern. Those are a hallmark three, but Zanelli is, that's an underdog. I recommend that one too, selfishly. Uh, all right. That sounds good. I always love when people recommend Sally's. That's where I went. I literally drove to the East Coast and planned my drive out to stop in Yale to be able to have a, to have a piece of pizza. So um, yeah. Definitely worth the drive. All right, what's your go-to slice there? We got to go one step further. Like, are you cheese, pepperoni, veggie? You go off the board. What's a, your what's your go-to? I'm a pepperoni gal. I love pepperoni. You can't. You, I, can't, I love a good veggie too, but pepperoni. I just can tell the quality of the pizza by a good slice of pep. We'll allow it. Cheese was the correct answer. Kelly will allow pepperoni though. So cheese was the correct answer for those keeping score at home. Okay. Um, the reason that we are here today, boy, I'll tell you what, May 2023 had some really, really good articles. And so I'm really excited to kind of get it going. And how else are we going to start it off but with our six-pack of studies? That's right, our featured articles. And of course, our emergency medicine specialist coming on is going to lead us off in our featured article discussion with the Swiss Army Knife of Emergency Medicine Drugs, tranexamic acid. So, Kelly, take it away. We couldn't start the podcast without talking about tranexamic acid. This article featured in the chest journal, Nebulized versus Intravenous Tranexamic Acid for Hemoptysis, which hemoptysis is defined as the expectoration of blood from the respiratory tract, whether it was in the trachea, bronchi, or lung parenchyma. The presentation can vary from streak sputum to frank blood. We have different classifications, including massive versus non-massive hemoptysis, with no clear differentiating volume explicitly elucidated within the literature, but generally, massive hemoptysis is characterized by its clinical consequences, including hypotension or asphyxia due to respiratory obstruction. Several etiologies can predispose patients to development of hemoptysis, including pulmonary embolisms, infections, just tuberculosis, as well as bronchial neoplasms. The management of hemoptysis depends on the severity, but generally includes obtaining chest imaging to determine the cause. If due to infection, treating that infection to resolve the hemoptysis, but other interventions may be necessary, such as bronchoscopy and surgery. We do have evidence for the use of transexamic acid within hemoptysis. Mechanistically, TXA is an antifibrinolytic that inhibits the activation of plasminogen and decreases, and decreases its conversion to plasmin, ultimately preventing the degradation of fibrin. In 2018, Wand et al. compared nebulized TXA versus placebo with patients receiving nebulized treatments three times per day over the course of five days, and they did find reduced bleeding achieved during the first five days of admission in 96% of patients receiving TXA and only 50% of patients receiving placebo. TXA here was also associated with a significantly reduced amount of expectorated blood with a shorter length of stay and fewer required interventional procedures. 
Our trial today is the first head-to-head comparison of active treatment published by Gopinath and colleagues. They created a single-center randomized open-label pilot study comparing the efficacy of IVTXA versus nebulized TXA in hemoptysis. Patients with active non-massive hemoptysis defined as blood in the sputum within the last 30 minutes of patient presentation who presented to a tertiary ED in India were enrolled. Massive, life-threatening hemoptysis that required mechanical ventilation, patients were hemodynamically unstable, or required an immediate interventional procedure were excluded. These patients were randomized one-to-one to receive IV TXA or nebulized TXA, both administered at 500 milligrams three times daily. Specified outcomes included cessation of hemoptysis at 30 minutes, the amount of hemoptysis produced collected at various intervals within 24 hours, the need for interventional procedures during the 72-hour follow-up period. Of the 110 enrolled, 55 were randomized to each arm. Patients underwent 72 hours of therapy upon ED presentation or until discharge, or if they underwent definitive intervention such as bronchoscopy, artery embolization, or surgery. Hemoptysis cessation at 30 minutes was significantly greater in the nebulized TXA group compared to IV TXA, 73% versus 51%, which was statistically significant. Regarding hemoptysis production, both groups achieved zero milliliters of hemoptysis produced at minute 30, but at 24 hours, IV TXA had 80 milliliters of hemoptysis versus 10 milliliters in the TXA group. Nebulized TXA as well had fewer interventional procedures required. And 68% of nebulized TXA patients were discharged from the ED compared to 39% in the IV TXA group. Bottom line, this is an awesome low-resource intervention to utilize in the early management of non-massive hemoptysis, especially taking a look at the ED throughput and disposition numbers that this trial highlighted. However, external validity is somewhat limited due to 76% of patients in the study having hemoptysis secondary to tuberculosis. Ultimately, I would like to see these results validated in other medical conditions, perhaps with the three-arm comparison as well of IVTXA, nebulized TXA, and placebo. Yeah, this is an appealing option for all, but I would say especially in centers without the capabilities to routinely do these procedures, right? If you don't have those interventionalists that can go in right away, this is something that could um, temporize some of it a little bit. As a pharmacist, I love the data on the osmolarity in the study. So if you look in, in the interventions piece in the study, it literally talks about how they diluted the NEB. They used 5 mLs of TXA, the 500 milligrams, and they diluted it with 5 mLs of distilled water. And they comment because they wanted it to be iso-osmolar to reduce the incidence of bronchospasms. Um, to So... Uh, Shout out to uh, clearly the chemists, the pharmacists involved with that. So that was really cool. Now, something that stood out to me, when they, when they look at these patients, at 30 minutes, there was zero mLs of hemoptysis. And so, you know, my question is, how much did it have? Like most of the time when, my, you know, when we're using this, these people are actively coughing up stuff. Um, and I agree with your TB comment, right? And the most common diagnosis right below that allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. So, you know, they mentioned that this is a, um, you know, a lot of the developing world kind of has to deal with this. So this would be a, a good intervention in some of those centers. But I think also this could probably be applied to other diagnoses, but just keeping in mind some of those differences that you uh, that you kind of talked about. But a really cool study to, to definitely start off with. Um, Now, the study that I wanted to talk about here is the PACER trial. Now, this was published in New England Journal of Medicine, but 
the essentially less is more when it comes to transfusions, right? In most circumstances, that's what we know. And that's what a lot of the literature is telling us now. And especially when it comes to platelet transfusions, right? Because we know that those carry a higher risk than others, right? Of infusion reactions. They actually have a little bit of infectious risk and things like that. Um, And if you have ever looked um, into the data on when to administer platelets, especially for patient safety with those specific procedures, um, you're left wanting a little more most of the time. And so, hence the PACER trial is published, right? And it was from our colleagues um, in the Netherlands. And the same Netherlands with maybe the most heartbreaking loss I've ever seen in a World Cup game against Argentina, but I digress. So, this was a an international multi-center, randomized, controlled, non-inferiority study. And adult patients were eligible for enrollment if their platelet count was between 10 and 50,000 and their INR was less than three. And they were located in the ICU or hematology unit. Now, one important note, right, if we're thinking about applying these to our patients is those who were on anticoagulation were excluded. Just an important note there. And basically the patients were randomized to get one unit of platelets prior to placement or to get no units of platelets before that central venous catheter placement. And the primary outcome was occurrence of grades two to four catheter-related bleeding in the 24 hours after central venous catheter placement. Now, grade two are minor bleeds that just require kind of longer compression time. The cutoff's kind of 20 minutes is what they define, which feels like a long compression time to me, but up to grade four, which is essentially hemorrhagic shock. Now, if you're wondering, like I was, like, what, how did, where does this grading scale come from? Well, it's from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services common terminology criteria for adverse events. So, all that to say is that it feels like it's a reputable source. This isn't, you know, we didn't develop this, you know, um, in guidance to something else. So, you know, from the U.S. Department of health and human services. So secondarily, they analyzed major bleeding among other things. So they included, they they enrolled patients from February, 2016 through March of 2022 and um, 373 central venous catheter placements occurred. Now, notable that there were some differences in these baseline characteristics, but want to point out that about 40 to 45% of patients were enrolled in the ICU um, and the median platelet count was 30,000. So um, they enrolled 10 to 50, so kind of hit the middle point there. Now, when they compared the transfusion versus non-transfusion group, the no-transfusion arm did not meet non-inferiority, and that's because the group was associated with a significantly higher occurrence of the primary outcome, those grades two to four catheter-related bleeding. And the platelets got up to 54,000 after one hour in the transfusion arm, so I'm kind of wondering, does that suggest a possible threshold? Can you think of that 50, that 50K um, threshold there? Now, of course, this study certainly supports the transfusion of platelets in those thrombocytopenic patients getting a central venous catheter placed. But this study saw much higher rates of bleeding than previous studies. Um, the authors note, they also note, right, we're, we have a lot of blood product shortages, right? So the idea that we have a study that says all these patients should get blood products might not actually be feasible, right? And and the they talk about that in the discussion that maybe instead we more closely monitor these patients afterwards. Maybe you're getting more frequent CBCs or things like that, Um 
if you can't try to transfuse platelets prior to doing that. So kind of an interesting study. Um, it's always interesting to keep keep touch with some non-pharmacologic interventions that are happening in our ICUs. So speaking of central venous catheter placements, one of the most common times that we will see those placed is in our management of septic shock. And Kelly's diving into the critical care world here with a scorching hot topic of steroid choices choices in sepsis. The debate on how to utilize corticosteroids or which steroid you should use in septic shock continues with this article published in JAMA comparing the effectiveness of fludrocortisone and hydrocortisone combination therapy versus hydrocortisone alone among patients with septic shock. As we know, studies have isolated a high mortality rate of approximately 30% in patients with septic shock, largely due to the deleterious mechanisms that we have that can cause vasoplegia and cardiovascular organ dysfunction. Our first-line treatments, the hallmarks, the standard, the true, include intravenous fluids, empiric antibiotics, vasopressors, mechanical ventilation perhaps, as well as source control via surgical intervention if warranted. As you can see, purely pharmacologic strategies are limited beyond antibiotics, vasopressors. The current surviving sepsis guidelines provide a weak recommendation to initiate corticosteroids in patients with ongoing vasopressor requirements. They specifically recommend here hydrocortisone 200 milligrams per day. The proposed benefit of initiating steroids in septic shock is a quicker resolution of shock, decreased mechanical ventilation time, as well as ICU length of stay, as well as potentially reduced mortality with the implementation of corticosteroids. Notably, though, the two trials to show mortality benefit were both in France and both used a combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone compared with placebo. The potential value of a salvage combination therapy with hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone and septic shock versus hydrocortisone alone has yet to be elucidated. Until this study, which is our retrospective cohort study using available data in the Premier Healthcare Database from 2016 to 2020, and it emulated a target trial which essentially is just defined as what we can think of the dreamiest randomized controlled trial that we would ever want that would randomize hospitalized patients with septic shock to compare adding versus not adding fludrocortisone to hydrocortisone. And the results here would assess morbidity and mortality from septic shock with the addition or lack of these interventions. Patients were included in this trial if they were in the ICU or step-down unit with septic shock and received norepinephrine, as well as patients who began hydrocortisone therapy within three days of hospital admission. Patients who are receiving fludrocortisone for any alternative indications such as primary adrenal insufficiency and orthostatic hypotension were excluded. Treatment assignments evaluated, as I mentioned, combination therapy of hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone versus hydrocortisone monotherapy. Treatment assignments evaluated patients with hydrocortisone monotherapy versus those who had hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone initiated on the same day. The standardization of subsequent doses or duration of therapy were not done by the authors of this trial. Just wanted to note that. Outcomes were assessed from study day zero, defined as the start of steroid therapy until hospital discharge. The primary outcome here evaluated the composite of hospital death or discharge to hospice. Secondary outcomes included hospital death, vasopressor free days, and hospital free days by day 28. Of course, with the trial of this design, the authors did add a covariate analysis to try and account for potential confounders such as age, sex, past medical history, variabilities in hospital practices during admission. Of course, they evaluated patients who received Atomidate as the debate for Atomidate and its adrenal insufficiency and outcomes is being further debated until the end of time. Of the 400,000 patients with septic shock receiving norepinephrine, 
The authors found 88,000 who met eligibility criteria receiving hydrocortisone within three days of hospitalization. 97% were treated with hydrocortisone monotherapy, with only 2.6% treated with the combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone. All the patients in the trial basically received norepinephrine on the same day when their steroid therapy was initiated. Regarding the primary outcome, 47% of patients in the combination therapy group suffered hospital mortality or were discharged to hospice versus 51% in the hydrocortisone-only group. The adjusted analysis here revealed a statistically significant decrease in in-hospital mortality and discharge to hospice by 3.7% in the combination group. Secondary outcomes of vasopressor-free days and hospital-free days showed significant benefits from the combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone. I value the utilization of quote-unquote found data that exists in uh, EMRs and national registries, and I think they're great resources to combat the hefty cost and time burden of randomized control trials. But of course, as we see in this trial, there are limitations to this type of observational data and the risk of unmeasured confounding variables. In this trial, we've limited the pool here to patients already on hydrocortisone therapy, making the results difficult to apply to the population of all individuals with septic shock who are candidates for corticosteroid therapy. I can see why the investigators aim to simplify this, but it does come at a cost. We're additionally missing data that helps to tell the story and estimate the severity of septic shock, such as the dosage of vasopressor therapy, although we do have the count of vasopressors on the day of hydrocortisone initiation. We're also missing the duration of mechanical ventilation, although we do have the incidence of mechanical ventilation on the day of hydrocortisone initiation, as well as overall inflammatory responses. I think this is important that septic shock is heterogeneous rather than homogenous. And ultimately, I'd like to see a large randomized prospective trial to detect a mortality reduction of 3.7% at least as evidence in this retrospective effectiveness cohort study. Red flag alert, um, you know, 3% of the 22% of eligible patients actually receive that combination therapy, right? So we got, we got a, a micro piece of a small piece of the overall pie. And then the, the other two things that kind of stood out to me, the median hydrocortisone dose was actually higher in that combination group than the monotherapy group, right? So are those patients more sick? Are, were they getting 100 Q8 of steroids because they're in, with the fludricort because you're kind of throwing the boat at them? Um, they also had a much higher mortality than we've seen in most modern septic shock studies. You know, the Arise process and Promise, this is a, a much higher uh, mortality rate. Um, so let's play a game here. Tell me it's a database study without telling me it's a database study. We have insurance info in those baseline characteristics. Whenever it tells me how many of them are on Medicaid, I already, I always know it's a registry giving us some of these data. The last, you know, I'd love to know the accuracy of these ICD-10 codes in these studies because, you know, from some of the, the chief complaints or the things that, that I'll see, you know, I, I don't necessarily think these are 100% accurate. And I know the authors kind of um, discussed that. So, Kelly, I, I, I heard your comment kind of laughing about Atomidate. So, we're going to play a real-life would-you-rather. So, if you had to use Atomidate to intubate in septic shock either A, every single time, or B, never again, which would you choose? I'm in the every single time. 
fuck it. That's where I live. I like that. Okay. I can't say that I feel strongly one way or the other. So I guess it would have to be every time because I don't feel like, I, like I'd be able to survive without it. Kind of an interesting thing there. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, an interesting study. I always ask every single sepsis expert that comes on to talk about fludrocortisone. Um, they are less convinced. We shall see. Like, is it one of those things if someone wants to throw fludricort per tube, am I going to lose sleep over it? Probably not. But are you going to see me running up to make that recommendation? Also, probably not. So, but a good article reviewing the evidence, kind of the real world evidence there. I completely agree. Great highlight. Um, so my next featured article, it, it isn't one article. It actually isn't even two. I know I'm cheating here. It's an entire supplement. So let me explain. Let me explain. So the FDA approved a new antibiotic. I want to spend a second giving some highlights because um, the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, they had a whole supplement in May highlighting Zach Duro. Ooh, I don't think I said that right. Sorry, team. But the generic name of it, which I'll be pronouncing, is Solbactam Durlobactam. Now, we're familiar with Solbactam, right? It's part of Unison, one of our favorites, Ampicillin-Solbactam combination antibiotic. And we know, right, that Solbactam retains activity against Acinetobacter. If you do those high doses, you can use that as treatment. But we, resistance has been increasing, right? And the carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter bimani, CRAB, right, it's one of the most concerning. In the CID, they published tons of articles talking about from what's the resistance happening, what's the state of our current drugs, to let's talk about this new agent. So with acinetobacter, the main mechanism of resistance is that beta-lactamase production. So it makes sense that you would try to combine two beta-lactamase inhibitors, right? If they're overcoming one, let's try to use that mechanism to prevent resistance for the other. And durlobactam is a beta-lactam as well as a beta-lactamase inhibitor. Bam, bam. So Durlobactam maintains that potent class A and C in activation, but as well as class D. Now, you may be listening to this like, Nick, what is this? This isn't clinical microbiology. Let me explain. So class D carbapenemase genes primarily cause these crab infections, right? The carbapenemase-resistant acinetobacter. So the fact that Durlobactam maintains activity against that class D inactivation that's your hope, right? That's to overcome the resistance and to have a drug to treat it. And it, it the drug was developed in response to these serious infections. And um, it's really cool that we're actually seeing some of these come out that could be making a difference because we know the benefit for like industry companies, right, are to get drugs that people take every day. And the idea with these is that you don't take antibiotics every day, but we need them. We need them big time. And so this is a really good one. And the review also kind of highlights the attack trial. So this, the Solbactam, Durlobactam was improved in May and it was based on the results of this phase three study. And it was comparing this new drug to colistin. And they met non-inferiority through treating these carbapenem-resistant acinetobacters, and they also had a lower incidence of nephrotoxicity. So what the FDA approval is is for hospital-acquired and ventilator-associated pneumonia caused by acinetobacter. All right, a couple tips here. So it's one gram every six hours, three-hour infusion. Those adjustments start at about a crowning clearance of 45, but it's one of those interesting drugs, right, that once their cranning clearance is greater than 130, you actually increase that dosing frequency. So admittedly, hands up, not an ID expert, but 
want to give a brief highlight of a drug that you might start seeing in your hospital. And Kelly, come back and close out your section of the featured articles talking about a agent that is getting adopted rapidly in practice, but is there enough evidence to support it? It's been one of the coolest things as a resident to see how dynamic medicine is and how things can so quickly change. So we do have emerging data along with the practicality of the administration of Tenecta Place. And as you mentioned, Nick, its adoption has been increased largely at centers for stroke thrombolysis, taking Tenecta Place 0.25 milligrams per kilogram over Alta Place despite limited guideline recommendations on TNK as an alternative. As a genetically modified version of Altaplase, TNK has a higher specificity for fibrin and increased resistance to PAI1 inactivation, which is our fancy acronym for plasminogen activator inhibitor 1, as well as TNK having a longer half-life. Another distinction here that I think is far superior would be that we can just administer TNK as an IV push as opposed to my site having to get it compounded in the IV room and brought up to my emergency department for a patient that we have a high concern for stroke. With the goal to decrease rates of ICH, intracerebral hemorrhage, and systemic bleeding complications, the safety of TNK thrombolysis is still being evaluated. Recently, the NORTEST 2 trial found an unacceptable rate of ICH and death associated with a 0.4 milligram per kilogram dose of TNK when compared to Altplace. What I like to know is the rate of ICH and death associated with 0.25 milligrams per kilogram of TNK when compared to Altplace. The comparative effectiveness of routine tenecteplase versus alteplase in acute ischemic stroke or certain trial accumulated an incredible amount of data from 25 international stroke networks aiming to assess the rate of ICH with TNK versus TPA using pooled real-world observational data. Patients at least 18 years of age with a clinical diagnosis of acute ischemic stroke and who were treated with IV thrombolysis from July 2018 to June 2021 were included. Keeping in line with our guideline recommendations, all participating centers provided thrombolysis within 4.5 hours of onset or last known well time. And taking into consideration concerns for wake-up stroke beyond 4.5 hours, the decision for IV thrombolysis was made with the aid of obtaining additional imaging. Patient data were entered prospectively into stroke registries. And the authors here wanted to evaluate a primary outcome of ICH defined as clinical worsening of at least four points on the NIHSS score attributed to either parenchymal hematoma, subarachnoid, or intraventricular hematoma. Secondary outcomes included an all-cause mortality during hospitalization, as well as within seven days and within 90 days. They also took a look at our modified Rankin scale score at 90 days, which as we've seen is a hallmark objective evaluated within a lot of our different stroke studies. With over 9,000 patients included, TNK was administered to only 21% of patients, with 79% of patients receiving Altaplace. So still Altaplace being a heavy hitter here. Of TNK administrations, the majority of patients did receive 0.25 milligram per kilogram dosing, with only 69 receiving 0.4. Additionally, I just wanted to mention patients receiving TNK were slightly older, had higher baseline NIHSS scores, longer symptom to needle time, and were more often treated with thrombectomy. And as you could expect, though, we did have a shorter door-to-needle time with TNK administered when compared to Altplace, the median difference here being four minutes. Circling back to our primary outcome, the rate of ICH was significantly lower in TNK group, 1.8% versus 3.6%, with no differences in those receiving 0.25 milligrams per kilogram versus 0.4. 
After adjustment for key variables, there was also no difference in mortality between the two groups. Keeping in mind, we do have our MRS scores, our secondary outcome, which is a great patient-centered indicator of functionality. So patients treated with TNK were more likely to have an MRS score of zero to one at 90 days when compared to those with alt who received alteplates. The takeaways for this trial, being the adjusted risk of ICH with the use of TNK was half that of alteplates, despite TNK groups having more recognized risk factors for ICH at baseline. These real-world data are reassuring for hospitals that have adopted TNK and provide evidence that TNK may not only be comparable, but possibly even safer than old place. So Kelly, what's your, are you team Alta place or are you team Tenecta place? Since the adoption of Tenecta place at our site, I honestly, our stroke codes have run so much more smoothly in my own, you know, just in terms of Sort of needle time. Um, I'm team tonight to place. All right. That is the correct answer. <clears throat> yep. That's exactly right. Um, you know, you point out this is a, a good, you know, again, a observational registry study again, um, but certainly a um, kind of good review and a, and a look. So the, the hospital breakdown, so the interesting thing, right, they looked at all these different hospitals, and the hospital breakdown in terms of who used Tenecteplace, so every New Zealand hospital could use it, and that's reflected in those numbers. The Australian hospitals mainly used for those LVOs, and only half of the U.S. hospitals even had Tenecteplace available to use, so most of the data being driven overseas, and you know, we've talked before on previous episodes about how stroke trials are sometimes hilariously specific with the details for inclusion and exclusion criteria. And this is just a pot of jambalaya, right? It's a, it's a stir fry, it just combines them all and then looks at safety outcomes. But, you know, that's important information definitely to know, but just want to point out the fact that like the generalizability in strokes is probably less than other disease states. And that you mentioned, right, with Tenecteplace, right, about 3.5% of those patients received a much higher dose, right? They received that 0.4 mg per kg. So just things to sort out, but I can only imagine the number of data that they pulled through. And as all these hospitals, like you mentioned, are rapidly um, adopting, you know, it's good that we're having things coming out that's reassuring and not, you know, um, making us have, you know, cold feet or regrets here. So... Let's stick in the bleeding realm, right? We're talking about ICH, so let's, I want to round out our featured articles with a review article in anesthesiology. And this, this kind of really builds on the two-part perioperative emergency episode released a few weeks ago that if you haven't had time to listen to, please do uh, talk about um, awesome pearls and tips from, from some of the, the best in, in their field. But this article is entitled Perioperative Considerations in the Management of the Severely Bleeding Coagulopathic Patient. And so it's a review article essentially from the perspective of like an anesthesiologist and looking at critically ill patients in the OR. It has a panel of U.S. and international authors. So you're getting that worldwide perspective. And the the text is great, but the tables are what makes this article stand out to me. 
Um, you know, for example, they talk about the bleeding risk from cardiopulmonary bypass and the mechanism behind it. You know, they, they go in and talk about all the different data on the use of antifibrinolytics like tranexamic acid. And they review everything from crash two to the most recent woman trial, right? And all the things in between. So, but I want to highlight a couple tables, talk about them here. So table three, that's the full page table. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the type of table where you got to reverse the view, right? Or you got to move that paper horizontal to look at it right. And the cool part is it lists all the antiplatelets and anticoagulants on the left. Then it talks about their specific target in that cascade or in the clotting factors. And then it talks about what their half-life is, how to monitor it, effect duration, et cetera. Um, but the best, the best tables, in my opinion, are tables six and seven. So uh, table six includes various trigger points that would lead to blood product administration, um, you know, considerations and things. And table seven gives treatment recommendations in the bleeding patients according to different guidelines. Um, example, right? If for, for fibrinogen concentrate, in cardiac surgery, it's weight-based. In trauma, it's three to four. Postpartum, it's two to four. So they do things like that, and they compare all the different uses. So, um, you know, it compares trauma, cardiac surgery, and postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, zip drive worthy, certainly an article that deserves some eyes on it. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, that was a delicious six pack of featured articles for the month. And it was a fantastic month for our cardiovascular articles here. And so Kelly's going to lead the way talking about a few of the ones that stand out to us in our cardiology section. So Kelly, take it away. You'll see my love for and passion You'll see my love and passion for ACLS with these three that I've curated. So the first, evaluating extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation for cardiac arrest, recently published in JAMA. This is a review that highlights a statistic none of us have ever heard before, that cardiac arrest affects upwards of 600,000 people annually in the U.S. Mortality rates stagger here with only 10 to 12 percent surviving out of hospital cardiac arrest and 25 to 35 percent surviving in hospital cardiac arrest. Extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or ECPR, is the implementation of VA ECMO to facilitate blood flow and oxygenation, and this treatment is being explored as a new option for these patients suffering cardiac arrest, as ECPR allows our vital organs to recover from injury related to cardiac arrest and provide time for reversible causes to be treated. We see a survival rate bump here of about 30%, which is awesome. But at this point in time, ECPR is recommended as a rescue therapy for select patients when conventional resuscitation has not restored spontaneous circulation. The ideal patient has yet to be elicited, but 
could be considered for one of younger age with a shorter time to eCPR initiation and those with more favorable physiologic parameters. Registries, however, report only less than 2% of patients were eligible to receive eCPR. And recent RCTs have evaluated the implementation of eCPR with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a benefit in survival to discharge, but what we're missing is a benefit in favorable neurological outcomes. While eCPR may increase survival in patients with refractory cardiac arrest, it's incredibly resource-intensive and more information is needed to determine the best suitable time to initiate eCPR as well as the best suitable patient to initiate eCPR in. The best part about this paper, hands down, it's not even close, is the figure at the bottom. To give you the visual of eCPR, seeing what happens when you're cannulating, talking about that oxygenation, decarboxylation, um, really cool. A great little, it's kind of a blurb, right? It's not a, for those who are in the depths of it, right? This isn't for you. This would be the people who kind of want that overview of it. And I may be may not be, but definitely am working on an eCPR episode. So stay on the lookout for that. Yeah. You mentioned your love of cardiac arrest is coming through. Why don't you go ahead and highlight a pharmacy to dose 2023 award article of the year nominee. Our nominee here would be the comparative effectiveness of amiodarone and lidocaine for the treatment of in-hospital cardiac arrest, recently published in the Chess Journal. So this, is, this trial addresses what little we know about in-hospital cardiac arrest and is a large retrospective chart review spanning 14 years by our colleagues in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it's giving us the highest quality patient-centered data we have evaluating amiodarone versus lidocaine in patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest and shockable rhythm. They utilize here the AHAs get with the guidelines resuscitation inpatient registry. And with data available for over 14,000 patients, they found 69% received amiodarone and 31% received lidocaine. Of course, controlling our confounders here, lidocaine was actually associated with statistically significantly higher odds of ROSC, survival to discharge, and favorable neurologic outcome when compared to amiodarone, which is quite staggering. These are interesting findings of studies of adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest have shown little difference between amiodarone and lidocaine previously. The reason for why lidocaine seems to be so superior here to amiodarone may be lost within the large database because we're missing patient-specific factors and additional information about the arrest, but I believe this study could be in the conversation to pause and discuss the utilization of lidocaine before amio in cases of in-hospital cardiac arrest. Well, everyone that's listened to the amiodarone versus lidocaine versus series knows my thoughts on this study. I think it's supported. Hashtag team lidocaine. Um, the only thing that I'll say that I believe that is that is my thoughts, and I don't know if it's been proven in any trials, that my thought is that how many inpatients are probably on amiodarone, these patients who have an in-hospital cardiac arrest. So is giving more amiodarone going to help, or would giving something with a different mechanism of action help? That's just my theory on it. All right. Now, Kelly, kind of close us out in our cycle here, and let's talk about what happens after we obtain ROSC in cardiac arrest. So let's say we administered lidocaine in, a, in hospital cardiac arrest. We got ROSC. Now the question comes whether to cool or not to cool. Since the TTM2 trial, I've questioned the benefits versus harms of inducing hypothermia after cardiac arrest which is what this Cochrane Database Systematic Review is evaluating, hypothermia for neuroprotection in adults after cardiac arrest. They collected 12 studies with nearly 4,000 patients. 
reporting the effects of therapeutic hypothermia on neurologic outcomes or survival. When we compare conventional cooling methods versus standard treatment or fever prevention, the therapeutic hypothermia group was more likely to have favorable neurologic outcomes, which they define here as no or only minor brain damage, allowing people to live an independent life. But keeping in mind the certainty of this evidence overall was low. And interestingly, there was no difference between therapeutic hypothermia and temperature management at 36 degrees Celsius. Something to note, and I feel like it was highlighted in TTM too, the incidences of pneumonia, hypokalemia, and severe arrhythmias were increased in those receiving therapeutic hypothermia. Current evidence, although with low certainty in this review, suggests conventional cooling methods may improve neurologic outcomes, although we do have more adverse effects here, and there were no differences found in maintaining temperatures at 36 degrees Celsius. So I'm further to see, I'm, so I'm curious to see further investigation on this clinical practice and if things will change in the future. What a great one, two, three, kind of highlighting some great cardiac arrest trials published in May. Um, I mean, it was a it was a fantastic month for for cardiovascular articles. I'm sure Kelly, you probably had a hard time just picking three because um, there were a few that I kind of wanted to highlight as well. Um, the first one was published in Critical Care Medicine, and it's a review on the optimal contemporary management of patients with cardiogenic shock. So basically, they review the history of cardiogenic shock management, the changes that we've seen from everything from diagnosis and classification to treatment. But then the authors kind of in this almost like a narrative review, they make recommendations as to what we should be doing with today's patients. Um, You know, it gives a, it includes like research and scientific statements to kind of create that full body of evidence. So, and if you're, if you ever wondered what are landmark trials in cardiogenic shock, mechanical circulatory support, Table one has you taken care of. It lists evidence-based recommendations in one column and the other lists landmark articles like SOAP2, IABP SHOCK2, right? That help create that recommendation. Um, you know, the authors discuss the need for, for more personalized medicine to help determine which patients would benefit from interventions like temporary mechanical circulatory support. And as always, don't you dare ignore those supplemental tables because there are two fantastic ones in here. So the first is a three-column table that describes, the first it has the different etiologies of cardiogenic shock, then it has the specific targeted treatment for that disease state in the middle, and then suggestions for things to do or avoid in the management. And then I'm thinking these authors might be friends of the pod. So if you're listening, shout out to you all because they close with trials on the horizon and cardiogenic shock and things for us to look forward to. And you all know that's how I like to end. So I'm guessing that there's some correlation here. So fantastic read, definitely zip drive worthy. And then as we're staying in that cardiogenic shock world, right? One of our biggest causes of cardiogenic shock is acute MI. And a research letter out of Yale New Haven, shout out your former colleagues in the Journal of the American Heart Association studied if our use of paralytic impacts outcomes in acute myocardial infarction. So uh, shout out Corey Heck, who's the pharmacist on the paper. Uh, But this retrospective study included a little over 5,600 patients and looked at the effect of in-hospital mortality comparing rocuronium with succinylcholine. So important to note, based on characteristics, they weren't similar between the groups. There were a few differences. Rocuronium patients had a higher percentage in cardiogenic shock, a higher percent undergoing ECMO that same day. So keeping in mind all the known limitations, right, that Kelly kind of talked about earlier that you've heard before with retrospective observational research, 
Patients who received rocuronium had a pretty high in-hospital mortality, and that maintained even after adjusting for some baseline characteristics. So hypothesis generating study that certainly is kind of making us ask, does rocuronium have a negative impact on our cardiovascular system? And then closing us out, letter to the editor, uh, dispelling dogma is how it starts. And it's a letter to the editor in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesia. And it's writing about the use of milrinone and renal impairment. And I want to point this out because this is one of those where the drug physiology, it would make sense that something could happen, but maybe some of the studies or real world practice hasn't shown that. So the authors point out when you look at the use of Milrinone in the ACC AHA guidelines. It doesn't necessarily have a recommendation for it, but in the table, you pull these guidelines and it has like the classic dosing table and has special considerations. And for Milrinone, it says accumulation may occur in the setting of renal failure. So if you read that, probably like, hmm, I'm not going to use that in renal failure, right? That'd probably be your, your if-then statement, right? And the letter references this retrospective study where um, in, that was published in March where they found no difference in arrhythmias between patients with and without renal impairment on milrinone. Now, again, those studies had limitations. Not everyone received it. People with history of arrhythmias were excluded. But just want to point out some discussion happening uh, with one of, you know, one of the favorite inotropes in cardiothoracic literature and maybe the idea that we might be using it in some more patients in the future could be um, possibly on the horizon. So, whew, that was a fantastic cardiovascular month. Now, ID has been bringing the heat and it's a big month for review articles. ID did the same. So, I'm going to be honest with you. I got a fever. And the only thing we need is more articles. So let's go. So the first one, it's our colleagues from France. And it's a review article about the use of aminoglycosides for the treatment of resistant gram-negative infections. So it's a, it's a classic review article, right? It's got the drug information, data, adverse effects, mechanism of action, pharmacokinetics, dynamics. Um, but it, as much as that's important, that's not why I'm highlighting this paper. So it is a goldmine for references on the use of aminoglycosides in the critically ill. How do we optimize our aminoglycoside dosing in the critically ill? When do we use aminoglycosides empirically in sepsis? What do guidelines recommend with aminoglycosides? What's the role of aminoglycosides in definitive therapy? What about routes of administration such as inhaled rather than IV? I'm telling you, a fantastic article about aminoglycosides published in the journal Antibiotics. Now, let's kind of stay on this topic of, of combination treatment. In our next study, it's actually a post hoc analysis from the Idiapason. Wow. That was, ID, you guys have complicated study names. Um, but basically, this was a comparing outcomes with monotherapy to combination therapy. Um, and this was published open access in critical care. So, reminder, right? This is the post hoc study. The initial study was comparing eight to 15 days of antibiotic treatment in ICU patients with VAP. And the eight day treatment didn't meet non inferiority because of a high rate of recurrence. So they looked at 196 patients from that trial and it compared monotherapy and combination therapy with a 90-day mortality primary outcome. And basically, they defined this definitive therapy, patients who got this as they had appropriate antibiotics administered the entire duration of treatment. And the authors found similar outcomes from those who received mono and combination therapy, but that the combination therapy was associated with a longer time on the ventilator. So... 
has post hoc analysis seemed to support that European guidelines are suggesting combination therapy only when treating MDR pathogens. And you know, the USA guidelines recommend combination therapy in that VAP-associated septic shock. European and IDSA guidelines do not. So, you know, this study certainly seems to support the less is more theory from that perspective. And rounding out our fever section, right, our infectious diseases articles, what better way than an article literally titled 10 Tips on Fever? So this so was titled In Intensive Care Medicine, and it reminds us that not all fevers are infections. I hear there's people clapping already, right? But these French authors suggest 10 tips for fevers in non-neutropenic patients. So I'm going to highlight a few of my favorites. Measure your temperature accurately, right? Under the armpits, not going to do it when you're critically ill. Get that core temperature. The definitions of fever may vary depending on the patient and the disease state. Um, when fevers exceed 40 degrees Celsius, you need to start thinking non-infectious causes, right? I like to call those tox fevers, right? When, when you start to think something else is happening. And then hypothermia or the absence of a fever doesn't necessarily imply that that's a good thing. Okay, so, whew, man, ID's bringing it to great review. Now, we are absolutely going to bring Kelly back because... How else could she finish but staying alive with our emergency medicine section, highlighting these articles in her specialty? So, Kelly, close us out. You did the ID section justice, Nick. So I want to continue the ID train a little bit. As we know, for those of us in the ED, we have so many different, different pathologies and disease states coming through our doors every day. Tough to remember everything. So I value this publication from the Journal of American Heart Association detailing a new clinical prediction tool for infective endocarditis in the ED. So current guidelines recommend the diagnosis be made utilizing the modified Duke criteria, which I wish I could sit all off the top of my head. I maybe remember a couple of those. But nonetheless, IE can or infective endocarditis can present variably with clinical features differing between patients based on the pathogenic microorganism as well as their past medical and surgical histories. Prevent misdiagnoses and treatment delays, as this has been found to greatly increase patient's mortality. These authors sought to simplify making the diagnosis of endocarditis for patients presenting to the ED with fever by creating the clinical rule for infective endocarditis in the emergency department, otherwise known as CREED score. So CREED was created using 12 different diagnostic variables. A couple of them mentioned include patients on dialysis, the presence of pacemakers, or other valvular prosthetics, a history of previous endocarditis, and the patients were retrospectively enrolled in a cohort, uh, and again, patients presenting to the ED with fever. The authors then prospectively observed patients to validate the CREED score and evaluated the association between CREED and infective endocarditis diagnosis. They mentioned some numbers, an acceptable area under the curve, receiver operating characteristic curve. <laughs> what that score means is it was appropriate and able to identify patients at high and very high risk of endocarditis with a satisfactory positive predictive value. However, it's not the perfect catch-all as half of the patients with an endocarditis diagnosis fell into the low and very low risk groups, which represents, I think, just the difficulty of creating a meaningful diagnostic tool for this complex disease state in this general and heterogeneous population. But I think an additional tool to be able to rule out or rule in this disease state is incredibly important. Yeah, that's a, you know, this is going to be for when you're in the ER, right? And whenever you, anyone that has 
any type of IV drug use anywhere. It's like, well, we're worried about infective endocarditis, vanxosin for three weeks. Um, so getting some scores like this that can help us there, I think we'll will hopefully not only make our lives easier, right, but, um, you know, prevent unnecessary antibiotic use there. Um, so the, the last literature review series, it's been a hot topic about AFib management, especially in the ED. So, Kelly, we got another study with another unique perspective for things to think about. So elucidate a little bit what this study showed us. AFib RVR near and dear to my heart. It's not uncommon, though, for patients to present with atrial fibrillation and have a history of heart failure. So with these coexisting, it complicates our rate control strategy for these patients presenting with AFib RVR with a heart rate exceeding 120 beats per minute. So as we know, in hemodynamically stable patients, usually diltiazem and topol are considered first-line therapies for managing AFib RVR. But guidelines strategies for patients presenting with concomitant heart failure is less clear. Usually it's recommended to avoid diltiazem, as non-dehydrocardian calcium channel blockers can exacerbate heart failure as well as cause other associated cardiac risks. This is a retrospective single-center cohort study from Moreno Valley, California, published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine that evaluated rate control between metoprolol and diltiazem in this exact patient population. So patients with an EF of at least 40% or less presenting the ED with a diagnosis of AFib-RVR and received either one dose of diltiazem or metoprolol. What they looked for was rate control defined as a heart rate less than 100 beats per minute or a heart rate reduction of at least 20% within 30 minutes of the first dose administration. Secondary outcomes included the sustaining of heart rate control at 60 and 120 minutes. They also took a look at some safety outcomes like hypotensive events, if vasopressors were initiated, if patients had incidences of bradycardia or if there was an inotropic agent utilized. Only 45 patients met inclusion criteria. 15 received metoprolol, 30 received diltiazem. The average EF here was 26% with a baseline heart rate of 136. Rate control achieved at 30 minutes was not significantly different. 40% in metoprolol versus 47% of the diltiazem patients with no differences in secondary outcomes. Interestingly, though, this site practices using flat doses of diltiazem, 5 to 10 milligrams. So I'm curious if the outcomes would have been different utilizing guideline-recommended weight-based dosing. And it may not be enough to convince me to use diltiazem otherwise. Yeah, this is one of those I, I had... I had high hopes until I saw that kind of minor point on the dosing. And I think that kind of changes everything. Now, the only, I like to play both sides, right? So um, if there was a group, right, that you would do different doses in, it would, I, it would probably be your hypotensive and or those with a reduced ejection fraction because you're worried. So just thinking of possible things of, of safety things, right. I, I could see the argument for that, but, um, interesting study. I agree. Probably not convincing me, um, to kind of change that one way or the other. All right, Kelly, close us out and kind of talk about a emergency medicine topic that may be not exclusively an emergency medicine topic. I thought this was a great review. It's an article series from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine highlighting high-risk but low-prevalence disease states, this one particularly toxic alcohol ingestion. So this is a comprehensive review. I think it's great. Toxic alcohol is not my strong suit within the tox world. So we have a deep 
dive looking at the various different types of toxic alcohols, their presentations, and different treatment management considerations for each particular one. So recognizing toxic alcohol ingestion can be difficult as patients can present with a variety of symptoms ranging from undifferentiated altered mental status, so patients appearing inebriated, to having gastrointestinal symptoms. Some key points I wanted to highlight from this particular article, the lack of an osmolar gap is not sufficient to rule out a toxic alcohol ingestion. I feel like it's often something that we go towards to evaluate, but we tend to not have patients' baseline uh, osmolar gaps available, so something to keep in mind. It may appear normal, but perhaps it may be so even in the setting of a toxic alcohol ingestion. Most toxic alcohols will contribute to an underlying high anion gap acidemia, but this is a nonspecific finding and other causes must be considered, such as a hallmark DKA. Treatment priorities include resuscitation and stabilization as always, but if there is a confirmed or high suspicion of toxic alcohol ingestion, fomepazole is our preferred antidote to ultimately stop the conversion of toxic alcohol to alcohol dehydrogenase. If unavailable, keeping in mind in the ED, we often have to have alternative recommendations in our back pocket. If unavailable to utilize fomepazole, we can have intravenous ethanol infusions to maintain a serum ethanol concentration of about 100 milligrams per deciliter. And we could even consider hemodialysis in cases of significant toxicity. Yeah, I know that IV ethanol is an alternative recommendation, but as someone who had to live through that with a fomepazole shortage, it's absolutely terrible. So buyers... Ever, if you're a purchaser listening, keep that stock of Femepazole handy um, because trying to manage these with ethanol is an absolute nightmare. But I agree, it's always nice to toss in a, a tox and EM article um, in that space. And the section that we have all been waiting on, that's right. It is the pharmacist featured articles in the front of the fridge. Now, we'll get to the winners of the votes in just a second. But the first article I want to talk about was not any voted at all. It was not voted on at all. But we have to shout out, right? We're talking about emergency medicine and toxicology, right? Brian Hayes, emergency medicine pharmacist, toxicologist, 2023 award living legend nominee who is an author in a case record in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, So the authors discuss various pieces of the case and Brian has an entire feature basically a page going into the discussion and considerations in the management so the the case the the series is called case records but it's not like a case report right the case is centered on a a pediatric overdose of an alpha 2 agonist and then then you discuss the overall management um so a huge huge shout out to our pharmacy colleague what an awesome honor um the paper is entitled a 13-year-old boy with depression and hypotension. So um, definitely anything Brian puts out there is a must read. Um, so a big thing there. All right, getting into our votes. So the winner of vote one, our vasopressor theme from Kansas City, Missouri, and authors Allison Brask, Ashley Holmes, and colleagues with their Annals of Pharmacotherapy paper, Timing of Vasopressin Addition to Norepinephrine and Efficacy Outcomes in Patients with Septic Shock. So the researching a common question we have with regards to septic shock, when to add vasopressin, and they retrospectively analyze data on 243 patients from multiple hospitals within one health system in 2018 and 2019. So the primary outcome was time to shock resolution, and patients were split into two groups. So you had early vasopressin, less than three hours, or late vasopressin, greater than three hours. Now, 
Baseline characteristics were similar, but I think one big notable difference was the patients who received vasopressin earlier had a higher SOFA score. So uh, what they found was that patients in that earlier group, they had a significantly shorter time to shock resolution, about a day difference. And of course, that led to a shorter ICU length of stay as well. An important point between these groups as well is more patients in that early vasopressin group received hydrocortisone, right? If you're you're thinking about adding on multiple pressors, that corticosteroid adjunct as well um, enters my mind. You could certainly tell this is data from 2018 and 2019 because we have reports of thiamine and vitamin C use um, back when HAT therapy was uh, all the rage. But um, an awesome paper um, from these pharmacist colleagues, and it's an article showing the potential benefits of those early multimodal vasopressors in septic shock. So this study, the, the, the dose they added, it, it was around 0.2 0.25 mics per kilo per minute of norepi there. So the winner of vote two, our anticoagulant theme, it's a paper in JACCP, a survey of critical care pharmacists on VTE prophylaxis dosing practices with enoxaparin in adult trauma patients. So this is from Sydney McNeil, Brandon Hoggs, and Brandon Hobbs, excuse me, Brandon, and Florida colleagues. Um, but a big shout out to the critical care PRN, because the surveys were sent electronically through the PRN listserv. If you're not a member, they're a sponsor. It's an awesome resource. What are you doing? Go become a member now. And then they sent it to critical care PGY2 RPDs. And the survey was sent to characterize self-reported enoxaparin VTE prophylaxis practices in trauma patients, um, evaluate guideline implementation, as well as TDM use. Um, instant standout from the data. It's not that 99% of trauma centers use anoxaparin. It's that one center uses unfractionated heparin. And I got to, I got to know more about that because feels like that. Um, there's got to be a different patient population. There has to be something that we're missing there. So would love to know more about that there. But back to the survey itself, it really seems to confirm previous reports that anoxaparin dosing and monitoring is going to be different at different centers, but it also describes slower incorporation of updated dosing recommendations. So the the paper has a, a really great table, table five, um, and it shows guideline recommendations for these various VTE clinical practices and um, slower incorporation, right? A lot of them, the standard of care should be 40 milligrams sub-Q every 12 hours and uh, the majority of centers still use that that classic 30 milligrams every 12 hours. So I like these surveys. I like to see what other colleagues are doing with specific clinical or these medication-related issues and kind of how we can improve as a whole. And closing out the pharmacist featured section, vote number three, an emergency medicine theme. This was a tight one, folks. Uh, it came down to just a couple votes, but the ultimate winner a paper from Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago featuring Andrew Robinson, Kevin Chang, Megan Reck, and colleagues. Uh, now, this was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, and this study looks to answer the question, what is the right calcium or citrate to PRBC dose in trauma and surgical patients receiving a massive transfusion protocol? And does, the, does having hypocalcemia affect your outcomes? 
right? So the authors retrospectively looked at 11 years of data, right? Comparing outcomes if you had severe hypocalcemia, they defined as a, an ionized calcium less than 0.9 compared to those who did not have severe hypocalcemia. And surprisingly, they found no difference in patient outcomes uh, depending on, you know, the rate of calcium administration, whether you were hypo, hypocalcemic or not. Um, now, interestingly, uh, in all that data, they found the optimal ratio may lie somewhere between one to two and one to three to maintain that normal ionized calcium uh, in trauma and surgical patients undergoing MTP. Um, I kind of always use the rule of four, so this is going to be a little different than than what I remember. Um, fun fact from the study, things I did not know. In every a uh, unit of PRBC, there are three grams of citrate, but then, man, there are 10 grams in FFP. I feel like it doesn't get enough recognition. I mean, then only two grams in whole blood. So a great article to close out the front of the fridge from our Chicago colleagues. And then, of course, we got to end with our grab bag articles. I always love ending with two kind of less traditional medical articles, heartfelt, humorous, what have you. So the first highlight, it's called The Mold That Changed the World, a musical tribute to penicillin. So I'm not going to lie. I saw that headline and I instantly thought, oh my gosh, someone published like their song lyrics about it. So I got so excited. So it's not that. I want to just let you know if, you, if that's where your mind went like mine did, that is not the case. But it's a review into a play about the Scottish bacteriologist who discovered the mold penicillin. So very jealous I didn't get to see this live. They talk about how they, they, they had showings at ID Week. They played it in D.C., down in Atlanta. They had, like, panels afterwards to talk about it. Um, but if you're like me and you didn't get to see it, they go into the play itself to make you feel like you were there. So just a really cool kind of arts and science combo there. Now, the second article is entitled, The Man Who Mistook a Hat for His Wife. I'm hooked. I'm hooked right there, right? But it continues. A case report of aortic dissection presenting with acute hyperfamiliarity for faces. So if you're like me, hyperfamiliarity of faces, I didn't know. So it's essentially the opposite of forgetting familiar faces. So you recognize things that shouldn't be familiar, i.e. you're in New York City, Times Square, and you think you see like you know, your aunts and uncles or your nephews or whatever there. So you recognize things that shouldn't be familiar. So it's basically the opposite of a famous Oliver Sacks story, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Hmm, wonder if, that, wonder if the patient in this was an Oliver Sacks guy. But the patient kept recognizing faces in the crowd and he had, he, he had this like forgetfulness. So the case report kind of goes through and they states, right, they, they worked him up as a stroke initially because he was confused. Makes complete sense, right? The neurology note, they were going to admit him for a TIA workup and that they said they, this was likely global, transient global amnesia and they were going to discharge him. But they found, so they got a head and neck CT and they found the start of the dissection. And then, of course, stat chest CT, they found a type A dissection. So... What a well-done case report. We're combining a disease state that keeps people who work in the emergency medicine up at night with the most rarest of rare presentations of it and combine them together with an incredible title. So very well done case report. That's me clapping because that was that was uh, a great, a great review um, on a uh, topic, right, that 
all of us in the ED are, are likely familiar with. Kelly, we made it. What an awesome, awesome job reviewing the May 2023 articles in the Literature Review Series. So, Kelly, let the listeners know if they want to reach out to you. Are you on Twitter? Are you on anything where they can where they can uh, let you know what an awesome job you did here? I have to say, I was not in the Twitter sphere before Ian Power RX, but I've met wonderful, incredible people. Was converted. Ultimately, my Twitter handle is Kelly OJ O H. J-A-Y. That is, in fact, how you pronounce my last name, although it is nowhere near spelled how it's pronounced. <laughs> yeah, look in that episode description and you'll see how it's spelled. And and so you basically just skip six letters. They're silent. It's fine. <laughs> um, it's original. Kelly, thank you so much. Um, what an awesome job. I mean, the just so the people know, she literally moved cross-country, finished residency, starting a new job, and still made time to come on and review articles for you, the listeners, friends of the pod. So be sure to let Kelly know what an awesome job that she did. Greatly appreciate her. And if you're curious, the reference list with the articles we discussed and more, it's on the website. It's in that podcast episode description, pharmacytodose.com. And you'll find the reference list on social media as well, at pharmacytodose, T-O to dose. Reach out, questions, comments, concerns. But until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health care professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the critical care PRN. ACP and the critical care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.